0: Great patient one,
1: Chapter 16, read by Atchán SUCHITO and Nick Scott. Our two pilgrims have returned to Bodh Gaya, now able to continue their walking pilgrimage. But first, for a few days, they can take part in Christopher Titmus's meditation retreat. Chapter 16 Saints, Monks, and Sages. Chen Suchito.
0: I'd just broken the rule about not handling money. Now I was being bounced along the rutted road to Gaya, curled on my back with my feet braced against the side of the cab to keep my guts under control. Something says there must be a better way than this to enter the place of the Buddha. The shaking stopped. Peering out of my churn, I realised I'd come to earth near the market in Gaya. It was time to get out, to gather the energy and connect to the scrambled body elements, untangle the legs and attempt the vertical. I got my feet firmly planted onto the dust of the road and managed a careful ascent. A stable world appeared, right side up. And there was Thomas. Thomas. Quiet, careful Thomas. He invited me to have breakfast with him. We went to one of the tents near the Tibetan monastery and had good Tibetan tea and good Tibetan bread. Thomas was one of the westerners I had met at the Burmese Vihara. He gave the impression of someone who had been to India many times and had found a way of staying centred in it. He was one of the managers for the forthcoming Christopher Titmuss retreat at the Thai Temple, making the practical arrangements of food and hiring cooks. Assisted by the even stress of his German accent, Thomas always spoke calmly. He managed to get things done, slowly, according to the stop-go-two-steps-forward-one-step-back movement of India he would be doing it for years as an act of service to the Dhamma and to Christopher's teachings. It was divine service managing retreats for Westerners in India and therefore being the contact between two powerful and contradictory mindsets It must have worn out every flint of impatience. A sharpness was still there but any fire had cooled into a reflective clarity. His quiet openness and interest in other teachings spoke of an unforced confidence in the path he was following. Such are the marks of a Vipassana saint. When I was going on alms round during the previous stay at Bordegaya, Thomas would materialise from time to time to place a few cakes or some bananas in my bowl and disappear with a smile. He saw a need and responded without fuss. One time, talking over tea, he had offered to cover the costs of having a new bag made for me by a local tailor. Meeting him again reminded me that it should be ready soon. But over buttered tea and bread, my spirits rose above such things, and our conversation ascended to an inquiry into the relative values of vipassana, insight meditation, compared with the more devotional approaches of traditional Indian gurus. This was sparked off by the number of Andrew Cohen disciples who were in town. In many cases, these were people who had practiced insight for some years, but now were attracted to what Andrew represented. Thomas had, of course, listened to Andrew, but had not been that impressed. However, he had stayed for a while with Andrew's teacher, Punjaji, in Lucknow, and been very moved by the Indian teacher's loving radiance. Joy starved Western seekers were now making their way to Lucknow to see the Guru. Thomas gave me the address and a little map of how to get there, should I be interested. Why not? I thought. The spirit of devotion had helped make my own spiritual practice less abstract, and although I was wary of Gurus, one holy man in this crazy trip was hardly going to spoil the integrity of the pilgrimage. Then it was time to move on. Thomas's keen expression relaxed back to the trace of a smile as he moved off into the crowded street and went about his business quietly. I made my own way slowly over to Wat Ty, where Christopher's retreat would be beginning. I was looking forward to participating, to sitting calmly in silence and focusing on the here and now of the mind. Insight meditation. That was how I started on this journey. Meditation required a quality of calm that was best induced by sitting still and collecting the mind's attention on the breath or feelings in the body. That took a while, but it got easier over the years. Insight then operates within that by objectively noticing the phenomena that appear within the mind's focus. Body, twinges, moods, patterns of memory, planning for the future, ideas and joys, as well as grudges, even dullness. With insight practice, a meditator could witness the phantoms of stress that haunt the heart as transitory and impersonal. So there was dispassion and awareness where there had been compulsion, and compassion where there had been prejudice. That was the spring out of which Rather to my surprise, my practice as a bhikkhu had arisen. Being on the road in India all these years later, however, was a major challenge to sustaining any perspectives. It wasn't just the hardship. Hardship can be recognised and compensated for, even used to support personal determination. It was the deepening sense of estrangement. A lot of something was going on, but there were no notebooks in mother Carney's academy the teaching was so direct it was visceral my heart would brace itself to resist the chafing of irritations and then receive a shower of benevolence that highlighted those uptight attitudes and the numbing effect for whatever hard skin formed over the heart things got under it and into the tender places and the rawness so the tranquillity and reason of the retreat, and above all its familiarity, felt like balm. Here I could be me again. After all this being bounced around, it was high time to get my feet back on the ground, to recenter and review. Christopher, greeted me warmly with a few words of tie in his hands in Angelique, when I wandered around the section of the Wat that would accommodate the retreat. He'd been a bhikkhu in Thailand for about six years, and his connection to the Thai Sangha, as well as the strong association with the Buddha that bodhigaya obviously conveyed, were among the reasons for his having held a retreat here every year since disrobing in 1976. However, his teaching didn't indicate such an underlying feeling for tradition. His approach was antipathetic to ritual and used questions and dialogue to heighten inquiry. Free thinking, the spirit of inquiry, and engaged were the catchphrases that one associated with Christopher. In fact, he rejected such terms as Buddhist and even meditation as being too loaded with outdated values but though I might have seemed out of place among the ragged bunch of westerners who were already moving in with gypsy determination, he welcomed me to take part. I was something strange to the Thai monks also. They were nervously polite when I appeared in the bhikkhu section and settled on accommodating me in a room with Pra Apichat, one of the resident monks. But there would be no room for Nick. Perhaps the many vacant rooms of the Wat were being reserved for the Thai tour groups who were the raison d'etre of the monastery. I wasn't about to argue. There were question marks hanging over every event on this trip. In fact, the strangeness was acquiring a sacred quality. Where everyone feels themselves to be a stranger, contradictions can coexist. A Thai monastery established on Thai custom and ritual as the expression of Buddhism could accommodate a Western retreat whose ideology was almost diametrically opposed to its own. And not quite belonging to either side. I could be accepted as a guest by both. Strangeness is a sanctuary. Slowly, I moved in. No, I didn't want to eat the meal. The goddess was turning in my stomach. However, she surely would have approved of Prahapichat's room. It was a shrine to chaos. Buddha images in bronze, coated with dust, and statuettes of revered bhikkhus hunched over in the curved spine posture that Western meditators despise as a slump. Those were the principal icons, some of them trading tatters of gold leaf like vestiges of devotion. They nestled as best they could on the uneven pile of robes from Thailand, many still in their cellophane wrappers, and blankets and cushions jumbled wherever they had been set down. Large fans used during blessing ceremonies might once have stood upright, but now lounged in any available niche, wedged into the strata of books and magazines, calendars and posters depicting the Tyro family, with the jars of aromatic balm, bottles of bright pink medicine, and packs of pills. They offered protection from all the pains of existence. Brass dishes, overlaid with the begrimed magma of long-extinct candles and wrapped in coils of marla beads, represented the contemplative aspects of the faith. The entirety was lavishly garlanded with skeins of sooty cobwebs. There was room for me here, I was assured, as I unearthed the simple plank bed. For my part, I struggled through some disjointed conversation with Apichat, who seemed a little bit strange, and began counting the hours till I could get out and over to the retreat. The retreat blazed outside with youthful ardour. Along the verandas that ran around the meditation hall, people had pitched their mosquito nets and bedding on bales of rice straw Never mind the rain that began to patter down and be gusted under the overhanging roof. The eagerness repelled the shower as easily as a hot plate. There was a packed audience of nearly a hundred westerners in the room for Christopher's introductory talk. The veterans were eclectic seekers who'd read or seen Krishnamurti and Chogyung Trungpa and sat with Vipassana saints like Munindraji, Goenkaji, Joseph Goldstein, or Christina Feldman. Many had done several retreats before with Christopher. With blankets draped around their shoulders against the damp January night, they were settled in half or full lotus posture on special meditation cushions, or squatting astride meditation stools that support an upright sitting posture. Although some of the retreatments were garlanded with beads, or the materia indica as indications of their familiarity with the East, the room was unadorned. A Vipassana workplace. No candles, incense or shrine. Or even chairs. The comparative newcomers were trying to get more comfortable by propping themselves against the walls. Christopher's opening talk was reassuring. Although it was mostly about maintaining silence and not smoking because of the fire risk, Even this was delivered with a sense of earnestness that was invigorating. Here was reason. Here was the opportunity to work towards a goal that was definable and life-enhancing. Clarity. Living in harmony with oneself and others. Plus a good taste of something wonderful. All this was delivered in a crisp British accent with its surging stress that underlined each truth before tailing off into understatement, throwaway remarks, and gentle self-mockery. His body bobbed up and down to the rhythm of his speech, with that emotion helping to pump them out. Even simple instructions acquired a driving sincerity. St. Christopher, faithful guide to those on the path. I could feel my mind firm up. Things continued to flow along nicely. That very evening... Katie, who was helping to manage the retreat, offered me Ayurvedic medicine, and the sickness abated, the way it should do. Then Nick arrived triumphant from Calcutta on the afternoon of the retreat's second full day. He got all the documents, passport, visas, airline tickets, and was in good spirits. "'I've got something for you, Bunte,' he said with a particular shine in his face, and pulled out of his bag some small object, his hands opened to reveal a Buddha image. Or at least it looked like a Buddha. Or was it some Buddhist angel? Or some deva, Or maybe it was a yucca, one of the demonic spirits who could be friendly if treated in the right way, that peer into the Buddhist world from the fringes of its cosmology. I'd never seen anything quite like it. For a start, apart from the obvious feature of a head, the shape was an indeterminate blob that approximated to a body sitting in a meditation posture with a vague suggestion of arms resting in its lap. The head tapered upwards into a spike, presumably either a headdress or a flame symbolising its aura. That was not so odd as the way that the spike was tilted in a rakish angle to the right giving the figure a slightly drunken or battered feel, which was echoed by the face. What a face! Again, not very clearly defined, two puffy, half-closed eyes that looked almost sinister, a nose squashed in like a prize-fighter's, but with a great triumphant smile beaming out of the crude dark metal. This was a totem of survival. I turned him over in my hand. What an icon! i never come across an image that felt so much like myself. It had probably been cast in bronze, but so crudely that flakes and gritty lumps roughened the surface. He was unpolishable and therefore perfect. Whether he was part demon, part angel, bodhisattva or whatever, he was Buddha to me. I was delighted. His name, I told Nick, is Mahakanti, the great patient one, the one who endures much. Something in my mind shivered in recognition, an image of his pilgrimage, but we laughed.
2: Nick Scott The
1: first I knew about Andrew Cohen coming to Bugaya was when I met a girl sitting in a tea shop outside the Burmese Vahara, the day before we left for Calcutta. Over the previous few days, I'd noticed groups of smiling Westerners wearing bright Californian colours who hadn't been there before, but I hadn't realised the reason. This girl was sitting at my table "'and looking a bit lost, "'so I started a conversation. "'She told me how she'd come to see Andrew, "'and that she'd been a follower of his, "'but had then become disillusioned the year before "'because of the problems it was causing with her partner "'and with her parents. "'Since then, though, she'd been having second thoughts, "'so she was here to see Andrew again, "'to see what effect that would have. "'She seemed a slightly forlorn creature.' very unlike the vibrant followers I've been seeing around Budgaia. She told me that these were the forward scouts sent on ahead to rent a couple of houses, one for Andrew to stay in and the other for the followers travelling with him. I'd already heard a lot about Andrew Cohen. He'd been a long-term student in the Vipassana movement, for which Christopher Titmuss was one of the teachers. he then had an experience of awakening while with the guru Sri Punjaji in India, which led him to also become a guru. Many of his initial followers, who collected around him, were other Vipassana meditators, and from then on he had gone out of his way to recruit more of them, causing a lot of consternation in the Vipassana movement. The retreat organisers reckoned it was no coincidence that he was due to arrive in Budgaya just two days before the retreat started. He would have known Christopher's annual retreats attracted a couple of hundred participants. When I returned from Calcutta, I found it amusing to spot the divergent groups of Westerners. The Vipassana students were serious-looking, and either on their own or in twos or threes. Andrew Cohen's followers were in large groups and full of laughter. Amongst them I spotted the girl I'd met, Now happy and relaxed, she even seemed to be wearing brighter clothes. By then Andrew Cohen was holding satsang in the front room of the house rented for him. This is an Indian tradition where just having an audience with a spiritual teacher is believed to have a great benefit for the followers. Andrew Cohen used the satsangs to dialogue, particularly with anyone new to the meetings. I suggested that we went along to an evening session just to see what he was doing, but Ajahn Suchito felt it inappropriate. He said it would be different if he were going out of interest in the teaching, but not just to watch as a spectator. So I let the idea go. But I did get to meet Andrew Cohen a year later at a Buddhist monastery in New Zealand. His followers had arranged for him to visit, so he could dialogue with the abbot in front of an audience of his local supporters. The abbot had other ideas, however, and Andrew met a group of monks, none of whom said they were the abbot, plus us two laymen, staying there. I found Andrew a fascinating character. He'd obviously had a profound spiritual insight, and he was charming, eloquent, and persuasive in talking about it. And I was impressed with his dialogue that is, until one of the monks asked some questions of his followers. There were seven of them there, six of whom were women, and they were all wearing that same colourful clothing I would seen in Bugaya. Andrew tried to answer for them, but the monk wasn't having that. So the women started speaking for themselves, and each one then gave an account that turned on the line. And then I met Andrew." The way they said it seemed more at home in a romantic novel than a Buddhist monastery. The only question I asked him was how he dealt with so many people idolising him. Andrew said it wasn't a problem. He was just something he had to watch and not buy into. For me, that was the least impressive answer he gave to any question. I only had to reflect on how pleasant having just one person fall in love with me could be to realize that it had to be more difficult than that. The following evening at the monastery one of the monks was asked to give a talk. He spoke eloquently about how destructive the relationship between teacher and pupil can be in the spiritual life. He himself had suffered from it several times. He had little belief in himself, like the girl I would met at Budgaya, and so was inclined to put someone else on a pedestal and look to them for guidance. He'd done it with several of the senior monks, and each time the result had been disempowering. It set him like concrete in the role of the pupil, he said, never able to think for himself. My problem with Andrew Cohen was how he allowed people to worship him in that way. That and the constant talk of his enlightenment. He did seem to have had a profound experience, but he also seemed to have got stuck on it, also cemented there by the relationship with his disciples. But then I've always been sceptical about gurus and the devotional
2: path.
0: After a couple of days on retreat, with the silence, long periods of walking and sitting meditation, I was feeling good and settled. I thought to take a brief break to check up on the bag that Thomas was having made for me. It had been over a week since I'd chosen some cloth and drawn up a design. Talking things over with the tailor, I'd explained it all slowly and in detail, and asked him if he understood, and whether it would be possible for him to sew it. Otherwise I could sew it myself. He was taciturn, but glanced at the pattern, took the cloth and waggled his head without looking at me. But I must have it in one week's time, I said. I have to leave Bordegaya. Can you do that? He mumbled, and then turned his attention back to his work. On returning from Calcutta, I'd gone to see him. Six days had passed. He had his head down, chewing betel nut over his sewing machine in the tiny shop. I'd made tentative inquiries. The bag? Any difficulties? Any questions? He kept his eyes on his work and grunted, OK. And would it be ready tomorrow? He fiddled with his machine and made a dismissive gesture with his hand. So next day I turned up with Nick to pick up the finished item. He pulled out the cloth and the pattern and began studying it. He hadn't even started it. Hadn't so much as glanced at it. My temper snapped. Even worse, Nick found it all amusing and brushed me aside to deal with the tailor in a calm and friendly way. This is India, Bunte. You can't expect things to get done on time. But it's not the bag. It's about being honest. But Nick wasn't listening either. He turned his attention to the tailor and was explaining the design to him in details. Put a zip here and... Very good. We will come tomorrow. Gotcha. In fact, where was Nick going with this whole thing? Wasn't this pilgrimage supposedly about supporting the here and now spirit of meditation? I just got settled in for the first time in months. And meanwhile, he'd already made preparations for our departure written to the officer at a forest rest house at Barachati, about 20 kilometres south of Gaya, to say that we were arriving on Friday the 11th, the day after tomorrow. So now there was pressure to write letters back to England, sort out how much of the things we had been given we should take, and consider packing it, but I didn't even have a bag yet, and getting things washed. So it was back into planning mode. That was the end of the open space. The emotion in me muttered that this wasn't the way to be going on a pilgrimage. I needed to stay longer with the retreat. Yes, let go of the time frame. That's the pilgrim's way. Meanwhile, back at the lodgings, Priapichat had gone rather strange. He spent most of the night sitting up gazing at a candle flame, and then disappeared in the morning to return later wearing an imitation leather coat with handfuls of money and meditation beads in his pocket. He'd been on a shopping spree and looked delighted to have picked up even more gaudy belongings. At the meal the other monks made fun of him in Thai ways that I couldn't follow. The one who spoke the best English and seemed genuinely keen on having meditation taught here made humorous remarks about Appichat being the meditation teacher in the monastery, but always running off on wild errands. Appichat looked at him darkly, and something resonated in me. Being laughed at rarely helps. I felt sorry for Apichat. I could only guess at what pressures trying to live as a monk in India put on a mind that probably wasn't that grounded in the first place. And what a name. At the ordination, a monk is given a name by the preceptor who presides over the ceremony. They're all inspiring names, qualities and aspirations. His name meant one who is content with few desires. (laughs) I felt a twinge of sympathy for the man. After all, my name meant good heart. That was tough enough to live up to. When you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, you must not find fault with anyone. If you find fault, it is because you have not made peace with the world. If you have not made peace with the world, it is because you have not made peace in your heart. These words of Master Hua ran through my mind for the umpteenth time. How far would I have to travel? before I could live out this instruction. We picked up the bag from the scowling tailor the next afternoon. He almost threw it at me, and it wasn't the way I designed it. The pockets were wrong, and there was a shoddy zip across the top that didn't close the bag and would be impractical to use. So that was the first item, delivered with hostility. Then there were the pile of things we'd offered to replace those stolen. There were two sleeping bags. I chose the almost unlined one that Sister Tanisha had passed on. Though inferior, it was smaller. There was a sweater and a woolen hat given by Sri Lankans. A pair of Sister Tanisha's old socks. And a blanket that Nada had bought me, useful on the cold nights. In the bottom of the bag would go the new alms bowl, bright and shiny. I could stuff my hand, towel and robe in it and I could fit on top of it the water bottle, knife and scissors from the westerners of the Burmese Vihara. Katie had donated a sewing kit, some medicines and a yoga exercise mat to sleep on. Venerable Nyarninda of the Burmese Vihara had given me a Burmese Sangati made of hundreds of tiny pieces of cloth. It was not a bad bundle to be carrying some of it given with hostility, but most of it with benevolence, all cycled through the human realm for contemplation. So there's a teaching in all of it. And moreover, Mahakanti, part demon, part deva, part Buddha, much travelled and worn, was coming along too, in his own little bag, to kiss some reflections for insight into who was carrying all this anyway. Christopher looked over it all with some envy. You should see the amount of stuff I take with me. Bags and suitcases. One day, he went on, I'll get back on the road, travel light. But just as he was apparently moved by the example of my renunciation, I was inspired by Christopher's clarity and sense of inquiry. So it is, we see in others qualities that we admire, that perhaps represent our own unconscious aspiration. Thus, the teacher arises in our own mind. Then comes the devotion, the acts of faith in that person's name. If that is understood, it can lift both parties out of their positions and who they think they are. In Christopher's case, I was noticing that no matter how straight and logical his own approach was, he couldn't shut off the devotion. People travelled hundreds thousands of miles to sit on his retreats. When he had tried to be fair and share his retreats equally with other teachers, students had complained, and he had had to promise to give a larger percentage of the talks. Dhamma had obliged him to transcend his own ideology, and now he had to live with a character called Christopher Titmus, whom everyone could see but himself. As for me, people kept treating me like a hero. The story of the robbery had got round the retreat. But how can I say that the action of offering my life was no more mine than losing my temper at the tailor or getting sick in Calcutta? Having set your mind into certain patterns, good or bad, things happen by themselves. To continue on the pilgrimage into the unknown was nothing heroic, It was the only real option, to keep walking away from the familiar, the patterns and processes that affirm my identity, away from the Buddhist holy places and into my own uncharted landscapes. And that was actually part of the tradition. In Thailand, such journeys are known as going Tudong, from the Pali word Tudanga, meaning that which shakes off, shakes off. The protective skin of your normality, because whatever is habitual becomes dead tissue dressed up as me, myself. Realising you can't shake off your own skin, you take on a practice that does it for you. Hmm. Maybe undertaking that jolting and confusion was a kind of heroism after all. It might even entail being kind to yourself.
1: Scott. Christopher reminded me of the journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who used to be on the television when I was young. He would screw his body up in the same way and ask questions with that same intensity of feeling. But why do you feel you need to know this? Sincerity oozed out of him, both during his evening talks and the periodical sessions of self inquiry on the retreat when he invited the participants to ask questions or talk about their experience and then turn their questionings back on them so they could find the answer for themselves. This sincerity also applied to dealing with Andrew Cohen. On the second morning, Christopher announced he had heard that some people had left the retreat the evening before to go to Andrew satsang. "'And I have been told that they left before it had finished.' This is disrespectful to a spiritual teacher. If you go, it is important that you must stay to the end. And this, despite the fact that Andrew was trying to recruit them. On the fourth day of the retreat, Christopher invited us to his room to take part in a group dialogue with himself, the other two teachers, and Thomas, Katie, and a Zen monk, It did seem a good idea, except Christopher would insist on keeping to his role of the investigating journalist, which made it rather unbalanced. We sat in a circle, cramped into his small room, and most of the time the dialogue consisted of Christopher putting us on the spot by turning anything we said back on us. With me, his interrogation was all about why I was supporting monks, and how surely I was failing to do anything for myself." My attempt at justifying what I was doing was pretty poor. When he got to Argentina Chito, however, he'd met his match. It was like an intellectual prize fight, staged for one of those refined discussions we get in Britain on BBC Radio 3. They went to and fro around the value and meaning of discipline and how it related to inquiry. Then Christopher got in with, and salt. So, What are you practising for? Ajahn replied that meditation practice is not about for, but rather how, and is mostly about opening. And because that occurred, there was the experience of something transcendent. Christopher jumped on that one. And how would you express that transcendence? Awareness without drives. And with that, they both sat back, rather stunned and with nothing more to say. Just before we left the retreat, Ajahn Suchita gave them a talk. I suggested to Christopher that he might ask him. After the months of pilgrimage, and then four days meditating, I reckoned it would be a good talk. I was right. It was taped, and there is a copy at one of the monasteries. When I asked for it, I was told it was the most popular talk they had. In it he explained how our pilgrimage was an example, like meditation retreats, of deliberately putting oneself in a no-control situation. How on retreats there can be an immediate payoff, with calm, composure and balance coming soon after one starts. But then the controlling mind comes in, and the lie starts, in which the mind tells us, I have done it, it was me, and now I am going to do some more, and it will get even better. He spoke of the necessary trough of despair that follows when the big push doesn't work. He joked a lot, as it was three days into the retreat when everyone but the most determined has reached that same point. He explained how if one sticks with that feeling, one then gets back to realising that perhaps things are fine just as they are, how it is then that there can be a profound awakening to the all-rightness of just being in the moment. It is then that you see that the real problem is with the mind that is trying to control it all. It's as if you are on the bridge of a ship, turning the wheel and calling out, Left hand down a bit, bit to the right there, or Left leg move, right arm up, I'm doing this today, I'll get that done tomorrow. We have the skipper on top, but what we don't realise is that the wheel is not connected to the engine. Life is going on. Mosquitoes come and go, the sun rises and sets, we get sick, and we don't realise that none of it is the responsibility of this hijacker up on top saying, I'm doing it, I'm in control, we'll get there soon, trust me. Did you see what I did then? He went on, We need to have situations in which we can realise that the whole of this life is a no-control event. If we keep putting ourselves in situations where we can look at this dichotomy, then gradually our relationship changes from being associated with the thinking-judging mind to being associated with truth. Then the more we learn to listen to this hijacking mind, this captain on the bridge, with a sense of humor, then the more we learn to live at peace with it. Because, of course, in relative terms, there are controlled situations. There are things we can do. But for ultimate truth, and for awakening, we can't do it. It has to happen through us. Then he talked about how the pilgrimage was a very good way of putting oneself in a no-control situation. How there was no way you could feel in control, immersed in that existential whatever that is India. How living on alms food is good for making you pay attention, because if food is not given, you weren't going to eat how it was good that he hadn't set the pilgrimage up in the first place, but had been invited to go by Ajahn Sumedho, following my offer, and how I, having set the thing up, very wisely handed over control to a monk, because Nick, being a good friend, has developed a relationship with monks where he can use them as something to hand over control to. So that's what I was doing. I wished I'd been able to explain it so elegantly to Christopher during that dialogue. At the end of the talk he spoke about devotion and how we were using it on the pilgrimage to maintain the right attitude to what we were doing. How devotion can cut through the sense that we were doing the pilgrimage to achieve something. I think he finished with that because the Vipassana movement puts all the emphasis on meditation dismissing much of the rest of Buddhism as unimportant cultural clutter. There was a small Buddha Rupa at the front of the meditation room beside Christopher, but only ourselves and the Zen monk bowed to it. Before the retreat started, I'd asked Ajahn Chichita why he thought Andrew Cohen had attracted so many people from the Vipassana movement, many of them people who diligently practiced meditation for ten years or more, who then gave it all up when they met Andrew. Ajahn Suchita put it down to the sense of bleakness that can come if one just pursues insight meditation as one's practice and for oneself. The meditators would feel they weren't getting anywhere. Then, when they met someone who introduced them to devotion, it would have a profound effect, opening the heart and dispelling the sense that they had to get anywhere they would be thrown into that same profound sense of contentment with the moment that he spoke of in the talk, except having been striving for so long, it would seem that much more profound. Then they would confuse the effect with the wrong cause and follow Andrew. The kind of devotion Ajahn Suchito described in the talk was not about surrendering to a guru, however. There is a kind of learning, when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning point is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of life says, keep going past the area where you can't control it, and trust. And for me, this is the heart of devotion. That is not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is, to live in accordance with truth, to honor truth, and trust the truth of our life as it is. So devotion was really surrender, giving of oneself, not to one particular guru or to one lover, but to whomever or whatever seemed worthy. Put another way, it was selfless generosity. Christopher was doing that, and Thomas, and Katie, and Ajahn Suchito, and even, at times, myself. The spiritual life can call from all of us the selflessness of a saint. That talk was given on the morning we left. From then until our departure, various retreatants came up to both of us to say how much they'd appreciated it and how they'd like to help our pilgrimage. We were given small sums of money, little gifts to take with us, and there were special treats from the cooks on our dinner trays at the mealtime. Christopher gave me $150 from himself and the other teachers. That doubled the amount I had available for the rest of the walk. Then, having tidied up, we left quietly. When everyone was resting after that meal, just one meditator spotted us going and ran after us to thank us and Suchito and to give him a small bunch of flowers picked from the garden. At
2: Sucito
0: On Thursday, after the early morning sitting on the retreat, it was time to check in with the tradition. The bhikkhus had invited me to the morning puja in the main shrine of the Wat. It was late, but about eight o'clock, so that local people could join in. But I felt it was important to honour the sense of Sangha by attending. We entered the elaborately fashioned temple building through the back by the enormous shrine itself, This was because there was a fence separating the shrine from the rest of the interior. On the other side of the railings were the local Indian people, children mainly. We began a devotional chanting to the colossal seated Buddha in the sonorous lilting drone that is the Thai style. I thought the congregation might join in, but the ruckus from the audience seemed unrelated or directed at us rather than with us. The reason for that and the fence became clear as we got to the end of the chanting, and one of the bhikkhus began hurling handfuls of coins into the crowd. The children went wild trying to grab what they could, shoving each other or thrusting their outstretched arms through the rails. The few adults made attempts to keep some measure of control. Retreating through the back door, we left the Buddha alone to survey the uproar. My mind reeled, reached for judgment, and stopped something was turning, inquiringly within me. I could see that the expectation that things go according to my ideals was just the need to have a view, a position, to know where I stood in order to know who I was. But actually, there was no need to have a position. Things were just the way they were right now. And for me, the bizarre a place of total strangeness, felt like where I belonged. Just because it went against the desire to have things be the way they should, it was that desire that alienated everything. Instead, I felt these bhikkhus needed some kindness. Maybe they'd been stranded in an utterly strange land for too long, away from everything familiar and dear, with no teaching or training, and expected to maintain things according to Thai custom. They must have felt like animals in a zoo. Unlike them, all of us Westerners had chosen to come to India, and we could get up and leave whenever we liked. And even when we didn't, as pilgrims, our Dharma was to keep moving. So we said goodbye to the retreat, and then there was one more farewell to make. Pra Apichat, my fellow bhikkhu, was in his room. I bowed three times to him and offered him a special Burmese sangati. I couldn't carry it with me. It was much too cumbersome, and its stiffness made it impossible to wear. But I hoped that Apichat would appreciate it and use it as a coverlet against the cold. In my heart I wished him well with his weirdness. We all have our own demons to work with. Though I still felt weak, my mind seemed to be bright and right side up again. Maybe things would make sense if I dropped all the ideas I had about following the Buddha or being a pilgrim. It was more important to find out who I was sharing this mind with and make peace with them very much to the point to feel a sense of harmony with Nick, this pagan, devoid of ideology, who nevertheless seemed to be in better shape than I was. For the next stage of the trip, we would be going through his kind of country, forest and wildlife reserves that he was interested in. We headed out on a dry road. After a last glance at the Mahabodhi temple, and finding no letters awaiting us at the post office. We turned right to the market and took the dirt road south, running parallel to the river. In that arid land, people seemed unfriendly, but quiet. The wave felt a lot longer than it had sounded. Waves of anxiety lapped at my attention. Then things began to blur with fatigue.